Hello everybody and welcome to episode 68 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray and on this episode, what matters is the upcoming Ryder Cup, the biennial match, always one of sport's great spectacles, expectations for the 2016 edition as high as ever. But the Ryder Cup is as much about the stories we build around it as the golf itself. And today's guest has done a remarkable job of breaking down some of the myths and legends that have made the competition such an anticipated part of the golf and sports calendar. We'll meet Richard Gillis in just a moment. But first, let me introduce my two co-hosts for the day. As always from the US, the increasingly popular and busy commentator, course architect, author, blogger, multiple podcaster to name just a few ones, Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, I'm having trouble fitting your CV into the intro. That that, that, that was way... Way too much, but thank you very much. <laughs> you're doing way too much, but it's great to have you aboard. Uh, you're in demand for a reason because you're uh, you're fantastic to talk to. Looking forward we, to chatting to Richard we, today. Yes, uh, absolutely. I, I cannot wait to, uh, to to discuss these important captains and, and all the incredible life-changing things that they're doing for the world. Yeah, cart drivers, I think you often refer to them. Yeah. So from here in Australia, commentator, columnist, caddy, course architect, touring pro and more, Mike Clayton. I know, Clayton, you really enjoyed Richard's book and you'll be keen to flesh out some of his ideas today. Yeah, thank you, Rod. Yeah. Looking forward to it. And now to the man himself, just the second guest in history to get a call back to State of the Game. He's the founder of the Unofficial Partner Blog, a journalist whose work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, The Observer, The Independent and more. But today... We're interested in his brilliant and timely new book, The Captain Myth. It's a real pleasure to introduce Richard Gillis. Richard, thanks for taking some time to chat. Oh, not at all. Thanks very much for having me on again. I really appreciate it. You and um, who was our other one? Gil Caps, I think, is the... uh is our other two-time guest, so you're in a, in a very exclusive club. Richard, you've called the book The Captain Myth. It's a bit of a misnomer, really, isn't it? There are any number of myths that are broken down in this tome. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it starts off by looking, obviously, at the at the captain. I mean, the, the, the whole, the sort of genesis of it, really, is that, you know, as you guys know, I do a little bit of sort of the business of sport, and the captains have always been someone on the on that sort of treadmill you know since probably since Jacqueline's time but then um it just became you know you got you get to interview these guys many you know and I've, I liked all of them I say in in various ways lots of people I didn't expect to like I like enjoyed sort of talking all the all about this stuff but one of the one of the issues was that a lot of the stories that you hear are, are almost word for word the same um you know, you sort of get a sense of the way in which the story of the event has grown up over the years, um, even going back to sort of 1969 or, you know, the, the stories around um, the concession at Birkdale or into the late 70s and, and into the 80s and the Jacqueline and Nicholas years. And then right up until, you know, even more recent times with, pod, you know, the, the Zinger's pods and, and, you know, the sort of Monty at, at Celtic Manor, etc. And a lot of the stories you hear, you know, repeated, lots of different people talking to you. But you're always a bit suspicious that, OK, it can't be that neat because obviously, as we know, um, you know, life and sport isn't neat. It's it's messy. And one of the issues that that. I was most interested in is the way in which we talk about leadership in sport. And I think we're in a bit of a, you know, the, again, one of the, the prompts for writing the book is that we're, we're sort of at a time that we're a little bit obsessed with the subject of leadership and, and particularly in sport and sport presents a particular um, version 
of the subject. And I just wanted to sort of get into that. And I think that the sort of summary of the book would be it's actually more about us than it is about them. It's about how we go about telling stories about sports events. Ryder Cup is, is probably my favorite sports event. So it comes from a position of, you know, a place of love. But there was a there is a sort of an industry devoted to creating both the story of the event, the story of the captain, but also there is a sort of industry devoted to leadership in itself. So I'm sure we'll get onto that. But that's these things are meshing together and creating a sort of class of people. I mean, the most famous people in sport are not players anymore. They're the people on the touchline. They're the people, they're the managers, the coaches, you know, and this goes across, you know, NFL, rugby, cricket, football, European football is, is at the moment is an astonishing sort of cult of, of leadership. And the Ryder Cup is obviously golf's contribution to that. So that's really where the whole thing came from. And that's what I wanted to get into. And the Ryder Cup was a, was a good way in, I thought. It's um, almost philosophical, your book, in a lot of ways, isn't it? It really does try to dissect, as you say, how we view things as much as the things that we're viewing. You draw a lot of parallels with business and the corporate world, uh, in this book and how it's become much more like sport. And one of the really interesting issues I thought that you raised was this notion that when there's a success or a successful team or business, that the media feels a need to create a story or reasons for that success. Can you flesh that idea out a bit? And, of course, we're all consumers of the media and how we clearly we sort of take on what it is that we're fed, for want of a better term. Yeah, Um yeah, I mean, the, the, the basic premise is that when, you know, and the book starts at Medina and Justin Rose holding a, you know, a, a, a lovely great putt, um, one he would hold less than 1% of the time. So it's a sort of 1% putt. And by the end of that that match at Medina, you know, the the story was going one way. And then at some point or over over Sunday, it went in a different direction, obviously, and it was fantastic. Um, now, Davis Love, for two days, was the good captain. That was the story that we wanted to attach to him. And Jose Maria Lathabelle was going to be the bad captain, and, and we were lining up stories that, that supported that. And it, we do this all the time. So essentially, we see the result. The only evidence we really have is the result. And then we go in search of, of um, reasons why the result happened. And straight away, you have two stories. One is, of a, is, a, is a good captain. The other is a bad captain. So the next phase of that is that the decisions and the um, strategy of the good captain, there is a halo effect that, that is sort of thrown across everything um, that person does or says. And because it's very difficult to, to write a story that says the captain is a bad captain, but he won. You know, the, the nearest we'll come to that is the lucky, the lucky captain. We, you know, that we, we, we might allow that story, but it's just not a satisfying story to, ha- to not have a cause and effect. So the effect is that the result is, is Europe have won. And therefore, Paul McGinley, um, the, his decisions, his strategy, the vibe in the team room, all of that must support the result because no other story makes sense. And likewise, the, the negative, uh, you know, the alter ego on the other side. Um, so, and from there, you then start to ask some more questions about, okay, well, why do we do that? And how did we go about doing that? Now, the, the link between the sort of corporate business bit 
and sport i suspect i think what's happened you know in in and i don't know what is guiding the other but if you look at the way in which business is reported um it feels a lot like sport so companies are teams the ceo is the captain um the results of the stock market they go up and down and people get the sack or are you know deified depending on where they are on that in that sort of arc um and again, there is a halo effect over their decisions. Some people go off and write books if they're successful. One of the great secrets is to get out at the top, you know. Um, and if you're if you're there at the when it, when the things go bad, you're going to get a kicking. You know, there's no way out of it. And that's essentially what's happened. So, um, and I think probably in somewhere in the eighties, the the rise of things like twenty uh, four hour news. Things like business channels started, you know, you've got to make, you've got to go some to keep a 24-hour business channel going with, with interesting stuff. And the, the, right, you know, the CEO became a, a famous figure, you know, and, and actually that's a relatively recent thing. We're only talking about 20, 30, 40 years where, where actually business people, I mean, Donald Trump being the classic, you know, de facto example where, you know, he rises People don't quite know where his money's come from, but he's famous and he's famous for being successful. Um, but we don't really know what, you know, in terms of the attribution of, um, you know, his wealth to his behaviors or his strategy. So that, you know, he's a sort of um, an example where that brand has been established. And I think somewhere in the 80s, I, you know, I sort of blame the 80s a bit. I mean, in the UK, you had a period where, um, a lot of people were given shares for the first time. So you opened, you know, under Thatcher's government and, and under Reagan as well, they opened up the, the market for shareholding. And people, you know, the positive of that is that people were, were buying shares. The downside is they didn't really know what the companies were doing in any, in any great detail. So they, they grabbed on to the superstar CEO. And increasingly, you know, the people at the top of the organization we needed more than efficiency and effectiveness of and management. We needed stardust and we needed people to sort of um, champion. And, and that's, that's essentially what's happened in sport as well. So there's, a, there are, you know, direct parallels, but it doesn't go too far into the business bit, but you know, it's, it's, that's, that's the context, I guess. I get something I certainly had never thought about. And it. it's, it's interesting to think about. And I suppose any decade that can give us the mullet is fair game to be blamed for anything, Richard. So, yeah. <laughs> No it's still alive and well in Australia, isn't it? Uh, now, now, take it easy. Some parts, not where I am at <laughs> the moment. Shaq, uh, in listening to Richard there, there's so much. It's a very broad sort of a tome, this one, in that it makes you think well beyond golf. Golf just becomes sort of the, the yeah. focus of a whole bunch of other issues. I know you've read the book and no doubt you've got some questions for for, uh, for Richard, but just sort of your thoughts on that whole idea of the, the you know, the, the, the captain – Myth and the halo, the good and bad captain. If I recall, in 2012, Shaq, for the first two days, Ola Tharba was a disorganized disgrace. Yeah, yeah. That's what's so funny is is he wins at, at Medina, but he really did not do a good job at all. And uh, Richard knows I have a very simple philosophy on captains that, that one of the three tenets of their, their position is to inform players when they are playing and not playing, and Malathabal didn't do that. Um, and it led to a very embarrassing situation. He was awful, really, when you think about the simple things you have to do. And Davis Love did a good job and blames himself for for uh, a, a bad hole location, which, of course, they weren't supposed to be 
telling Gary Haig where the holes were, supposedly, as the story goes. But then, of course, he then realized he made a bad hole location. And, and how that uh, – the idea that that affected the matches and was the difference is also sort of silly. But uh, but but listening to, to Richard, it's so fascinating because we do have such a – and I, I'm curious – if if we, we can blame America for this, or or who really deserves the blame? But this 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 star worshiping of the leader and the CEO and the and the captain is just so incredible. Uh, we had a, an amazing moment yesterday on Capitol Hill. Richard probably saw it, uh, where uh, uh, my bank, Wells Fargo, is being grilled by these uh, politicians, and and they asked the the CEO. What the people who were who were doing these uh, supposed bad deeds were paid, and then what he was paid, and it was just a stunning moment, um, and, and it was just another one of these. We've had these reminders that it's absurd, Richard, to put this onus on these people as these um, these incredible uh, decision makers, and yet we continue to we, we continue to repeat it and make it worse. And I mean, is your contention that sports is helping? To solidify this uh, kind of myth of of the uh, the one person who who pulls all the strings, yeah, I, mean, I think that's the, the probably the, the the strongest conclusion of the book is that that it, sport should be telling a different story, and sport is you know professional sport like golf has an enormous media pro global media profile, and you know a lot of it's selling a lot of things all day every day, and one of the things it's selling is in around Ryder Cup is that the idea that ideas reside at the top of an organization and that, that the person at the top is has a monopoly on on creativity and decision making nous and and uh, talent and that is fed downwards into the organization and 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 Gary Hamill who I've got a lot of time for who's who's in the book um uh you know famous business writer he he puts it that you know the the ancient egyptians would recognize the basic organizational structure of most companies that still going today, you know, that, that, um, the, the authority at the top being fed downwards. Now the Ryder cup should be a completely different model. If you took the captain away, obviously you're not going to do that. He's a marketing tool and he keeps the, you know, in the media vacuum of two years, we wouldn't be able to, you know, what would we talk about? You know, so he's, he's essential from that (laughs) perspective. He is a marketing, um, uh, asset, but if you took him away, and you've got to say that someone like Azinger and and, and yeah. um, McGinley were talking this game that you know they 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 will repeat and repeat that it's not about them, and quite often you know in some cases they mean it, sometimes they don't. But there's a if you look at Azinger, what he was doing was devolving responsibility down to his pods. It was a lovely story, the pods, you know, the Navy SEALs and the rest of it. It was a great bit of um, theatre, but it's uh, you know at its heart was actually a, a decent idea here. You know, if you take the captain away, does chaos ensue, you know, are, or are these 12 um, experts and, and highly skilled professionals um, going to come together and sort it out? And one of the issues that we've got in sport is that actually the more we deify the, the leader, um, the more we, we champion the leader, the, the less responsibility the players have. And actually, mm. We see this in other sports and, you know, as an England football sort of somebody who follows English football, um, quite often the criticism is, well, they don't know what they're doing. You know, they're always looking around if something goes wrong, that that they're not taking responsibility for their own performance. And actually in the Ryder Cup, it feels like that could be a brilliant model because actually it's a bunch of very, very highly skilled, intelligent people. 
most of the time. Um, you know, so if, if the captain wasn't there, if he was just a nominal figure, as he used to be, um, then actually golf would be promoting quite a forward-thinking, wisdom-of-crowds-type vibe, which uh, How do you you know, would be helpful. How do you Richard, in all honesty? Well, I don't, I don't see much, you know, what, what, what would the worst, what could be the worst that could happen? I mean, we're, if, if it's, if the, if all the, what are the key decisions that the captain is made, is, is making, he's making wildcard picks, he's making, um, pairings and singles orders. Rain suits. Don't forget rain suits. Sorry. <laughs> 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 I think got to mention the last time we talked right a captain. Um, but, I, I mean, I, you know, those, those are perfect. Those aren't complex decisions. They're, they're things that, you know, people could sort out. And quite often, you know, um, are sorted out amongst the team. It would be fascinating, wouldn't it? To see. Well, I think so. I mean, it'd be, it would add a dimension to it, wouldn't it? <laughs> no question about that. Um, I think there was a fantastic quote in the book from a professor who said that by excessive promotion of leadership, we demote everyone else. I think that's sort of what you're saying there, isn't it? That yeah. you know, by focusing completely on the captain. And in a way, the, the whole task force in the US thing, Richard, what was your take on that and where that fits in with the leadership, particularly given that what they ended up coming up with was going back to a previous yeah. captain? Well, I mean, uh, I'm relying on Jeff here because Jeff was like the sort of task force, you know, correspondent <laughs> for a while. He was. It was like he was, he was, it was fantastic. Um, well, they are entertained. Um, yeah, I mean, I love the task force as a as an idea, and I love the the sort of energy behind it, and I love the you know the 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 idea behind it. And and let's face it, if America uh, Team USA wins this time, the task force is going to is going to get enormous amounts of of oh. credit. Um, I, I like it because, I mean, Jeff, both you and I were in uh, in that press conference, the Phil Mickelson, you know, takedown at Glen Eagles. And that whole, his whole position was essentially look, looking through the captain myth of, of Azinger. He was saying that, that, and it's the last, you know, the last time we won, we were a team, we were pulling together. And that then evolved into the task force. There was a sort of quite a, you know, an attempt at, putting some management bureaucracy in place that in some way is going to um, replicate what they think has gone right on the European side. So one of my contentions is actually Darren Clark isn't sure what's gone right. And he's in a bit of a bind because um, at the end, again, in the other, in the European press conference at Glen Eagles, McElroy, Westwood, a lot of the players were talking about McGinley's blueprint for success. And you should, you can, you know, he has written the, the book now on, on, um, on leadership and it can be just followed. And as we know, the only thing we know is that there is no blueprint. There is no template. And by putting the task force in place there, there is an attempt. And now, you know, Davis Love is talking a lot about con- con- um, uh, continuity and, that has been, you know, very much part and parcel of the European sort of story over the last um, 20 years. The assumption being that there is a link between those two, that they're winning because there's continuity. And, and quite, you know, and the, the, other, the other assumption, which I love and the Americans hate, is that Europe is winning because they have a, they have a superior team spirit. A, they gel as a team, whereas the Americans are loners, the cowboy myth. You know, it's, there's that whole sort of they breakfast alone and the, the trays in the, in the corridor story, um, whereas the, the, the European tour is sort of some sort of Club 1830 sort of 
gig where they all fly around together and it, and it's these stories are you know have their roots in you know 20 30 40 years ago in some cases when um, things were true richard when that was more true than today well clates will know more about this than i do but you know in terms of the i'm sure that there were lots of it, it looked like a great laugh being on the european tour in the sort of 70s and 80s i don't know but it was you know that's i'm sure that there was Greg Norman, I know, because I've talked to him about it, you know, he's, he's always talking about, oh, you know, he romanticizes the sort of driving around, um, you know, blokes in a, in a car driving around and, and, you know, from event to event, which I don't know whether that's a sort of millionaire's rose-tinted view or whether it was actually the truth. But there seemed to be, um, you know, groups of p- p- blokes happy in each other's company going around now the, the, that's all fine um my there are two points to make on this the europeans appear happier because they you know are they happier because they're winning or are they winning because they're happier and you know mm. they have won a lot over the last 20 years and we've seen them you know when they lose 2008 being the classic example um there ain't much team spirit in that room so you know it's this like a it's a it's a tricky one, and there is no great evidence to support the idea that that teams that get on together play better together, because actually the opposite is also true. You need creative tension. Yeah. There is a lot of you know research to suggest that, um, of course, it feels right. It's a story that feels like it should that that those two things should correspond, but. There's no great evidence to support that that's true. Yeah, Faldo really took the heat in 08, didn't he? There was no question about that. He <laughs> he was very much a part of the captain myth, and he was the bad captain. Clates, did you drive around from event to event with Greg Norman in the 80s on the European Tour? What was your take on I, that notion? It was Rolls Royce. Um, I mean, that's true. That did happen in Europe. Um, I, I And Richard and I spoke about this a little bit. I mean, Europe started winning because they had the best five players in the world on the team, basically. Sevi, Elazabal... Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, sorry, not Elizabeth. Sevi, Faldo, Lyle, um, Langer. Langer. Yeah. Wisdom. And someone else who was great. Um, Wisdom. And I think so much of it goes back to, which no one speaks about, was that in 1974, the RNA made the big ball compulsory for the British Open or the Open Championship. And until then, the Europeans have been uncompetitive, except ironically for Jacqueline, who'd gone to America and learned to play with the big ball, which demanded better striking because it was more difficult to play with. And within five years, you had Seve win the Open. You had, within eight years, you had them staying to win the Ryder Cup and staying to dominate it. None of that would have happened if they'd stuck with a small ball, which is, I'm not sure if that's relevant, but no one ever mentions it. And, you know, I think some, Tom Watson told someone after dinner, he goes, well, Europe won because they made 140 birdies and we made 85 or whatever it was. And they made, they played better. Uh, and how much McGinley had with them had to do with that. Who knows what the answer to that question is, but in the end, they just played better. Well, and, sorry. Well, and the other analogy I would draw, which I just thought about was the good caddy, bad caddy. So Steve Williams <laughs> you know, great caddy, won all those tournaments with Tiger Woods. And, and Steve said to me, he said, look, he said, my mum could caddy for Tiger Woods and he'd be winning major championships. But for 68 holes at Royal Lytham, Steve Williams was the good caddy who'd done the amazing job. And then he was the biggest idiot in the world because Adam Scott bogeyed the last four holes. So is he a good caddy or a bad caddy? Well, neither really. 
and, and I think you know it's the same with the Ryder Cup. Well, you know, if they win, they're heroes. If they don't, they're, they're complete dunces. And you know, Mark broke, James, you know. you've broken down Richard's entire book into sort of one, one sentence there. I think, Clates, that's kind of the nub of it. This is the second time you've mentioned mum's Clates because in 2012, and I went back and pulled the clip. I'm going to play it later in the show. You suggested that your mum could captain the Ryder <laughs> Cup team to a win. Do you stand by that? Well, I think I yeah I, I do remember saying that. Like, what, what did I say? It was the most overrated position in sport or something? Yes, I've got the clip here. I'll play it a bit later. That's exactly what you said. I clearly <laughs> still believe that. Well, well, I, well, well, it's unprovable. You know, it's the, the you know, well, well, it happened here in the in, in the big football finals a couple of years ago. There was a, there was a great player who was going to be suspended for the grand final because he'd hit a guy in the match before something had happened. And, of course, if he hadn't played, that would have been the reason the team lost. But he wasn't suspended, and he played, and they got slaughtered. But hmm. you know if he'd been suspended, that would have been – forever that would have been the myth that if he'd played, they would have won. Well, he played and they lost. So, so, so there are these myths about sport that go through everything. They're, they're unprovable, but in the end, McGinley's team won at Glen Eagles because they made 40 more birdies or whatever it was than the Americans did. Well – was that McGinley's genius or the fact they were better putters? Or, and it certainly wasn't a fact, which I think is another point, it certainly wasn't a fact that the golf course advantaged the Europeans because when this all started at the Belfry in 1985, if the Europeans had lost, the reason would have been undoubtedly, well, they built an American course and played on an American golf course. How stupid can you be? You, you, know, you played right into their hands. But, of course, they won on a course that's more American than any golf course in America. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you touch on this, don't you, Richard? That the, the course setup myth is one of the great myths of the Ryder Cup in a game that has become global. Yeah, I and I, you know, obviously about you guys on on you know course setups, etc. But I do think that I know that that question is always there, and and journalists love asking the question, the setup question. You know, how are you going to set up the course? Um, and it's one that goes right back to the beginning, I think, you know, in terms of it's it's a if I just recoil from that a moment, it, it, what we're seeing here is we've got 24 players of rough, you know, very, very similar ability. And we're seeing them, you know, come together. And the problem that we have is making uh, making sense of the difference between them. And the core setup talks directly to that because it's saying that there is a fundamental difference between European and American players, which I would argue doesn't exist anymore. Um, it did exist in 1927. Um, but it's fundamentally about, you know, the, the getting at the point where European players, and again, it's, it, it's needing some point of difference. And one of the issues that the Ryder Cup has is, and sport has generally, is that the, the, the coming together, if you like, of uh, technique, of of practice. Everyone is now practicing, you know, full time. There is there is there used to be considerable differences in swings, and now you go on to the range, and you know you cannot tell an American player and a European player apart. Whereas you used to be able to do that. Now um, the more and you know I make the analogy, and it is a crass analogy, and I make it sort of just with a with a bit of a you know a. a caveat just to make a point is that if you look at um what we're doing with 
how we're looking at the Ryder Cup. We're essentially doing what you know the advertising industry does is that it takes um, products that are essentially the same. Now you know it's very there's very little difference between the phones you buy, the cars you buy, the burgers we buy. Um, the difference is the stories we tell about them. And in advertising, they refer a brand. The definition of a brand is a product with a story attached. Now it's getting you know I'm looking at the Ryder Cup and I'm thinking well actually there ain't much difference between the 24 players there. And actually, Roy McIlroy has got far more in common with Dustin Johnson and, and the American team than he does with the people who watch the Ryder Cup. And one of the issues that we have is that, okay, as, team, as the teams have become closer together, the more storytelling has come into this. And, and you know, if you look at the growth from the 80s when you're, you know, it became a more competitive event, um, we have then resorted and we go to uh, versions of, say, the American team. So we over here in the media, but also, you know, um, the general public, we talk about the Ryder Cup, American Ryder Cup team, and we project onto them versions of, of America that we, you know, it's, it's, and it mixes a sort of religious far right. Tom Lehman got, a, you know, got that in 26. So did Corey Pavin. There's a lot of stuff about, you know, war analogies, and and which is you know very unhelpful which we've had you know battles of brookline and and wars on the shore and all of that stuff is just part of telling stories about sport but where we we amp it up when there's actually fundamentally less difference between them and one of the one of the challenges the Ryder cup has is that the, it used to be them and us was a vertical line between you know across atlantic now them and us is horizontal it's the players and the people who watch them and they're in another world they're in a they're in a they're in a sort of hedge fund world. Um, whereas, and that, and that's tricky for golf generally as a sport, as a spectator sport. Um, and it's more also, you know, for the future of the Ryder cup, because if there isn't any difference, if, and I think I've got the, the stat in the, in the book where I think at Medina, 10 of the 14 and a half points that Europe scored were scored by Florida residents. So, you know, <laughs> all of those, factors it's really difficult to tell them apart and what we're doing is projecting onto them stories and 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 that's you know and grabbing the captain as a reason to explain the results common sense tells us richard that everything you say is true and yet we continue <laughs> to buy into it don't you? there must be a certain pleasure in the consumption of this stuff and allowing yourself to be taken we do it with the masters every year in particular we certainly do it with the Open Championship in a somewhat different day, and we definitely do it with the Ryder Cup. But the, the the viewing public needs to be invested in it for it to be a success, and we continue to invest, even though deep down we really know that a lot of it, as you rightly point out, is kind of nonsense. Why do we do that? I think, you know, uh, I, don't get me wrong, I love the Ryder Cup, and I like, you know, and I indulge in it as much as anyone else. Uh, and it's just, it's it's more about me than it is about them. You know, and I think that that we do it because it's fun. You know, and and um, that's part of it, and that's what journalism is. But you know, the, the, it's interesting in what this says about how sport is reported, I think, and how business is reported as well. But it's a secondary issue. But in, just in terms of the way in which we go about trying to conjure stories and storylines. Um, and how often they're the same is what, what I found was interesting, how the sort of 
homogeneity of the stories that we tell. And that's a bit of that is structural. You know, quite often I was quite shocked in, when I was, became a journalist how rival newspapers at a press conference you get at the back of the room and say, okay, what's the line? You know, what, what are we thinking here? No one wants to talk about anything that's beyond the sort of, you know, a, 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 uh, that, that, is, that is sort of slightly out of um, left field because they don't want to look daft. So all of that, I think, you know, to answer your question, yes, of course, it's it's common sense, but it's also we do it anyway and we enjoy doing it. And that's part of watching sport. And I do it as much as anyone else. Mm. Yeah, there's a certain joy in it, isn't it? Jeff, I think you've got some questions for Richard. Far away, as always, so Richard, I'm hogging so, it. So, Richard, the, no, 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 you're, no, you're not. You're doing great. The uh, So, Richard, the next uh, step in this captain's myth and leadership myth, I think, in, in sport in particular, uh, that that uh, we have uh, provided the world with, and I, I'm curious how it's going internationally, but analytics are the... The new obsession here with uh, with several sports, we now have these teams run by people who've made a lot of money in business. Uh, instead of hiring the general manager uh, uh, who knows the game, they they are hiring these these uh, analytics experts, and we are now apparently bringing analytics to the Ryder Cup. Uh, Davis Love has mentioned this. Uh, uh, much of the discussion is about this. People get excited. He's going to use analytics and <laughs> plug in. I, I mean, there he actually mentioned playing people, uh, pairing people based on uh, tendencies in the two different players' games to match up. And, of course, we know, and I find it laughable because we know in the Ryder Cup, stats just go right out the window. The pressure is so immense. Players choke and do things and hit shots and lose parts of their games that they've never had before. Other people clutch up in ways that, that, are, that are unusual. What, what, where do you see this, uh, this analytics component in sport and, and leadership kind of uh, uh, coming in here? Is it, is it just more a part of, of what, you're, uh, what you're getting at in the book? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, there, there's a sort of, you're certainly right in that um, there's a whole money ball thing going on here, isn't there, that, that, that we're moving into into golf. Um, and again, part of that is a sort of it, it, the science bit and the rise of sports science. I'm not a huge fan of sports science generally and, and just this, you know, the promise of certainty, which is what the data um, is doing. And, the, you know, um, Dave Peltz, Again, you know, I like a lot of what he says, but a lot of a lot, his whole shtick is that, you know, we're removing feel and touch and we're mm. moving towards, you know, which are sort of horribly human attributes. Um, and we are sort of smoothing swings out and we're replacing that with with, you know, scientifically repeating, you know, something swings that you can repeat and repeat and repeat. So there's a whole bit around data, which is enormous fun but it's, you know it's driven purely because we've got this got it available you know and that there is there is no turning this tide back um what you can see is maybe you know if you look in um sports like rugby where the coach essentially now is sort of sitting behind a screen and, and you've got a bank of people with laptops and the game is going on and the, <laughs> the, 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 you know it's almost like they're sort of pawns in a game and they're being moved around um, yeah. And I think the more data is just an extension of something else that's happening, which is the sort of 
all of this takes place when there's a vacuum and and you know in rugby uh and uh rod and clates will support me on this is that when they, they start used to be doing it at half time, you know, the team talk at half time, leadership was there for us all to see. It was a bloke waving his fists and blokes eating oranges. They went in, you know, when once they went into sort of uh into the changing room, our imagination started to 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 whir up. And now we really want to know what's on those laptops. What are those decisions that are being made? What's taking place? And the team room in Ryder Cup is one of the remains one of the great sort of areas of, of uh, mystery and we still stories emerge from the team room you know because we're not allowed in there and that's that's fascinating and part of the mystery and the mystique of the coach and the manager and the captain takes place in in the data and quite often now they refer to it's in the data and that's almost like saying it's in you know it's it's you can't see it but i know what yeah. the secrets yeah. are and it's yeah. it's yeah, it's exactly. elevate you know it's elevating the role of the captain. I have the knowledge and therefore I can make decisions. And the worry is that that's just going to, you know, make the Ryder Cup captain even more of a, you know, an all seeing, all powerful being. Um, and because knowledge is power, right? Some interesting stuff there. Clates, what's been your relationship as a player with data and what we see today. I've heard you talk about Smash Factor and other stuff in the last few years, which would have been unthinkable when you took up the game. And what's your take on what that's doing for the game? Is it doing good things for the game or bad things for the game? Is it becoming less romantic as it becomes more scientific? Well, swings are technically better, obviously, but that goes, it comes down to the video camera and the, now the camera on the phone. So, you can check your swing every second of the day. Um, I mean, there's, yeah, the, the strokes to hold thing, it makes some sense to me. I mean, strokes gained against the field. I, I, I thought, you know, statistics were, weren't particularly interesting when 20 years ago or 30, when all, they, all you looked at was how many greens you got and how many putts you had, but not where you had the putts from or not how close you got to the hole from different parts of the golf course. But... And I still like Hank Haney's kind of theory that, well, not theory, but if you don't three-putt and don't double-chip and you don't take penalty shots, you've got a chance to win a tournament. And it's pretty simple, really, when it comes down to, you know, you can overanalyze things to death, but for those who don't go through that again, Haney talks about Marco Mira. He said he was a good player, but no more than a good player. He wasn't Tiger Woods who could afford to make mistakes. And he said he couldn't win a tournament if he three-putted if, if when he missed a green, he didn't get the ball under the green with his next shot, or he had penalty shots, he just couldn't win. And that's the, you can, you can analyse the game to death, but if you don't do those things, you've got a chance to win tournaments. And you've got chances to win Ryder Cups, and, you know, it's a pretty simple game, really. You can overanalyze it to death. Do you, uh, I've, got, I've got a question, sorry, just yeah, on, yeah. on that. I just wonder, just when... Um, the the world rankings and the ranking system that that is used that as a sort of arbiter of of Ryder Cup talent and potential. What do you think about that? Because there seems to be, you know, it's the only thing that they can go on really. But I I, I go around the houses on on its value, and I've spoken to to a few people who actually know, you know, what it is, <laughs> you know, and how how it works to an extent. 
Uh, Keith Waters at European Tour is the is the key man on on sort of knowledge of the world ranking system. But it's uh, what's your take on that? Just in terms of its its use, in terms of its uh, relationship to performance at Ryder Cup. I mean, has every uh, my assumption is that every American team their, their average ranking is lower or better than the average European ranking. So this year is the average American ranking something like 14 and the Europeans are 27 or something in the world. Mm. So, so that doesn't play out in, how the, in terms of how the results have been in the last 20 years because the Europeans have dominated it. And my assumption is the American team is always on average ranked higher than the European team. We always so, do it on paper. You know, the Americans are always a better team, but golf's played on well, grass. Well, That's one of the great myths, isn't it? <laughs> well, plus it's, plus it's 18 whole match play, which is the most fickle game in the world. I mean, it, you know, it's yeah. a, you know, it's it's not 72 holes of stroke play where there's more of a chance that the best player is going to win. But if you play an 18 hole match and and you jump out and you bury the first three holes, you're awfully hard to beat. No matter who you're playing against. So, so you have Peter O'Malley and Nick O'Hearn betting Tiger Woods in the World Match Play. Well, that stuff's been going on forever. Nick O'Hearn twice, Clates. Always have to mention that. Yeah. Twice he rolled Tiger Woods. <laughs> uh, but uh, to, to Richard, to your point, I think we're going to have a discussion about this after this uh, weekend because I th- I'm pretty sure Bubba Watson won't be picked unless he finishes in the top three at the Tour Championship. And he's he's going to join Paul Casey as the, the the great snubs of all time in terms of world ranking, and I think it's fascinating too that that the analytics are going to be used. Davis Love now, so we're, we're using analytics, but we only really want to use them when they tell us the story they want to tell us. And in this case, it's going to be that Justin Thomas. If you just take his points from the last year, and I posted something on my website today uh, where one of my readers went. And uh, just did the points based on golf for the since the wraparound calendar started last year, which allows Justin Thomas's win to mean more and other players' performance like Zach Johnson to uh, at the Open Championship mean a whole lot less. And so Davis, I think, is working from a similar uh, points list. Uh, it's not a published one, but it's it's I think it's going to happen here because passing up Bubba at number seven in the world. I think that's an incredible snub if you place value in the official world rankings. Why, why is he doing that? What? Oh, they don't like him. <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I think the other players are tired of him. And, and, he, and In their defense, Bubba is a person who, if he does not love a golf course, it's not happening. And he doesn't love many courses. In fact, I think Clates, I think he hates more courses than you and I. I think he's more fickle <laughs> yeah. than we are about architecture, right? Extraordinary accusation. Yeah, well, yeah it's okay. That was a little strong. You're right. Well, I'm not sure he's basing his hatred on the quality of the architecture. I'm sure no, so. ours is a little different. We would like to think ours is more refined. Yeah. yeah. His is the dreaded what fits the eye uh, model, which yeah. in his case is not many courses. I suppose. So I think. It's a big issue with him is they know that. They just know he if he doesn't like a place, he's he's toast. I, 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 but they can't say that publicly. What about this notion of one of the great myths that you sort of explode in there, Richard, is the notion that the Europeans are kind of bound together. You touched on this earlier and, you know, the Americans are all individuals. What about the notion of the team player, that the player that's good in the team room? I think we'd probably put Bubba under the... Yeah, he may fit the bill of the player that's not necessarily good in the team. He's a divisive character, isn't he? What can that do to a team? Is that a legitimate 
sort of an impact or how do those yeah, things play I think- out? I, th- I think on that, the, the, the team player is a player that's sort of not good enough to have a personality of his own. You know, as in it's not, you, we've got a whole load of archetypes, haven't we, you know, around Ryder Cup. That's part of the fun of it. And it's the sort of, you know, you've got the alpha alpha males, the Polters and the Montgomerys and the, you know, the Azingers of this world. And then you've got the sort of, you know, Langer is the efficient German. You know, you've got the sort of, uh, Swedes have to be wacky you know, and, and there is the sort of hot-headed Southern Europeans and on all of these sort of things that go, go together. And, and actually the team man, you know, the, the guy that's, that's good in the team room is one that it's sort of one of those players where you're trying to find a place for them, you know, and I think it's one, <laughs> there's a, there's a sort of, um, I like the, the, there's a, there's a, just trying to think of the guy, who was the guy? There's a quiz question about 1981 isn't there who is the who is the one guy that didn't win a major from that american wide oh, 1981 uh, bruce listich yeah. yes exactly ah, nice from nowhere hey, you're <laughs> unbelievable close. don't ask him how he knows that richard because his answer will be how do you not <laughs> well, that wasn't unbelievable i mean there's been no european team no matter how great they've been that would have beaten that american team I don't think. I mean, that was a phenomenal yeah, dream. Yeah, here you go. Crenshaw, Pete, Floyd, Bruce Litsky, Johnny Miller, Hale Irwin, Larry Nelson, Tom Kite, Lee Trevino, Tom Watson, Captain Dave Marr, Jack Nicholson, Bill Rogers. Yeah, no one's okay. been that thing. <laughs> it's a pretty good group. What's interesting about that, I, th- I find the 80s, you know, because that's obviously the transformational decade of this whole thing, and is how quickly America declined. You know, if you look at the side in 85 and 87 um it really is quite a step down from that side so you know it's it's extraordinary that that sort of decline the other bit to that is um i find jack nicholas's role here interesting i go into this a little bit in the book but in terms of the the so the again one of the sort of tropes is the greedy american you know, and the the, the, the overestimate, you know, money, the 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 sort of um, prize, no prize money, and you know, all, you know, all of that sort of question, and that sort of started in the eighties when they started losing, and it came about because Nicholas and Palmer essentially were the ones that were saying, well, these guys are making too much money now, so the the spike in prize money in the mid eighties, um, again was was substantial and you started getting players talking back to your point Rod, about the team player but you started getting players who weren't winners but they were making enormous amounts of money and getting onto the team without needing to win and that was always nicholas's point um it was a little bit disingenuous because actually behind the scenes he was trying to take over the pga tour wasn't he that, uh, you know in the sort of early 80s so there was like this um, he was bla- he was very quick to blame money, and as was Arnold Palmer. And the, you know, Palmer wrote a, a stinging thing in the in um, uh, I think it's the USGA's annual, which talked directly to this. You know, and that this rise of of the just the moneyed um, country club sort of brats who were populating the tour, and that was that's that became a thing, and and. Then when you transpose that and the team, it, it became, the story became about Europe, the, the big five that, you know, Clates mentioned, 
you know, always the, the reference was they needed to win. So they were sharper because they were used to winning down the straight. And that became the sort of vibe. That, and, and that's a story that has maintained. Um, again, it, it has its roots. I think the 80s, are, for lots of different reasons, are we're still telling stories that stem from there. It was the, the, it was the great coming of the Ryder Cup, really, wasn't it, with the addition of, well, Europe, but really Seve uh, and everything that kind of flowed from that and some of those great moments. Nicholas has said something recently. I've only seen the headlines. Shaq, you probably know the story uh, better than I. I've only seen the headlines. But hasn't Nicholas said something just in the last couple of days about the Ryder Cup yeah. not being about winning? What, what's he said about it? He's always had an interesting relationship with all of this stuff, hasn't he, Nicholas? Well, he's always viewed it as what Samuel Ryder intended, I believe, which is an exhibition and a chance to uh, have moments of sportsmanship and and different countries coming together and and having a goodwill match and everybody having a good laugh afterwards. And so he views the task force as overkill. He views the uh, the desire for the U.S. to get younger as a, as a potentially uh, I can't remember the exact word, but but he doesn't like the the idea of putting that kind of pressure on the young players. So he's been fairly consistent on that. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's gotta be interesting for him because he is, um, somebody who on the business side has, has, uh, has kind of milked, uh, the, the image and the, uh, the, all the aura that comes with being the greatest player ever. And, uh, he certainly earned that, but, uh, but you know, when you look at his golf course design, he's he's the ultimate captain's myth. I mean, uh, the people who make his uh, his golf course architecture business happen uh, it's it's a lot of people, and it's and yet yeah, you, know, you hear people go, oh, it's a Nicholas design. You, you, you know, some of these places. There's now he does have a pretty good memory about some of his courses, but there are other projects where he's lending his name, and it's other people, and he he couldn't tell you the third hole from the ninth hole. Um, so that's uh, it's kind of interesting. The the captain's myth. Clates, wouldn't you agree, is sort of uh, is something we, we see in golf architecture a lot? Oh, I, that's idea of the, I mean, yeah, I'm telling this to somebody who has a, 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 per, a firm named after four people. So, uh, you know, like the anti, the anti uh, star architects. Yeah, well, I know that, you know, Bill Cora has said, you know, the greatest myth about golf course design is the person whose name's on the course is the, you know, the person yeah. who's responsible for it. I mean, you go to Rio and you know, I mean, I mean, Gil's name's all over that golf course, but he'll, he's the first to tell you how many talented people he had down there who, who no one's, you know, Carl France and Ben Hilliard and all those guys who no one's ever heard of who built that thing and made it right. so good. Mm. Yeah, and, and, you know, um, I mean, down here, I'm the one often who gets the credit or the blame for, you know, work that goes on, but there are four of us who do it. And, and yeah. in fact, the, Normally the blame plates, that's, that seems to be your job in the whole thing. You you take the blame. Before we diverge onto golf course architecture, and couldn't we talk about that forever? There were three nuggets in the book, Richard, that I particularly enjoyed. One was that, you know, 10 of the 14 and a half points at, uh, I think it was 2010 actually, Glen Eagles, were, for Europe were won by residents of Florida, which is a staggering statistic and very telling. Um, one of the others was that you, Colin Montgomery admitted there was some luck in captaincy, which I think a lot of people would find surprising because that doesn't tend to be stick. But I suppose the third one, which really intrigued me, was has there ever been a celebration uh, as euphoric as Sam Torrance's uh, on the 18th green for a player who was shooting 76, which I didn't realise at the time. That putt, that iconic photo of Torrance with his arms in the air, that putt that went in was for 76, I read in your book. That's oh, it was, it was, I reckon it was for 78. 
<laughs> Either way, Clates, have you ever seen anybody celebrate so hard for breaking 80? Well, well I remember watching it live. It was a pretty significant part. Of course it was. But I suppose it talks about the... Where does the contest fit into all this stuff? It seems to me that we fill all the space around the competition with these fascinating discussions. But at the end of the day, what really works for the Ryder Cup is that those moments are real, those pressure moments. Hunter Mahan duffing that chip, that was real. Um, yep. you know, that rose putt, that was real. And we sort of fill everything else around it. But when you watch that in the moment, that's kind of why we watch the Ryder Cup, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and, and it's... Sorry, Clayton, you go. Uh, well, well there, there are so many shots that we remember from the Ryder Cup, more than anywhere else, really, I mm. think. I mean, O'Connor's two iron and Freddie's nine on that followed it. And, you know, the Langford part, there are three went out of the bunker. There, there are so many events remembered for, or, or has created so many incredible shots. I mean, Rose's part over the years that have just more than any major championship, probably. Mm. Just on that Seve shot, uh, Clates, I once asked a bunch of questions, you know, t- 10 questions with players. I asked Laura Davies, you know, what's the, the best shot you've ever seen? And she said, well, I didn't see that shot of Seve's out of the bunker, but I've climbed in that bunker and I can tell you that shot is impossible. It can't be well, played. That was her response. Was it that well, good? Well, no one saw it apart from the people who were there because it wasn't on TV, but but it can't have been more impossible than the shot from behind the wall in Switzerland. I mean, that was... <laughs> anyone, any golf fan should one time in their life go to Cronus Year, which is the worst course in the world to play a tournament on, and go and stand behind that wall that Seve had that wedge over and just marvel at what happened there. I mean, just... But yeah, yeah, this is way off the topic, but, I mean, beyond belief, that guy. I mean, just beyond belief, the things he did. Is it kind yeah. of off topic, though? In his own way, Richard, wasn't Seve a leader in terms of the Ryder Cup? Apart from his captaincy, yeah. but wasn't he a leader? Well, I think he's, you know, I think, um, so from a European perspective, I think he's probably the, you know, certainly the the sort of spiritual leader, but I think there is a, he was a genuine leader, you know, he was the leader, he's, he, as a captain, he, you know, he talked to a laugh about his, his, his best friends and, you know, he laughs, you know, because we all know that he wasn't a great captain, they won, but, um, it, the captaincy had nothing to do with it. You know, he was he was the the leader in the same way as you know people talk about Palmer, but they also talk about you know Mickelson now. You know that Mickelson is actually, you know, wh- whoever's doing the speeches, it's Mickelson who is driving the driving the whole thing. I don't know if if Shax would agree with that, but there is certainly. I mean, Ballesteros was just fantastic. He was you know uh, here. You know, you you. you I, I think it's probably hard for people in the States to realise just what a what a deal Ballesteros was to to people of my age in you know in Britain and you know I'm sure you know in Spain obviously. But it's just like a it was he transformed it. He was just so charismatic and so um unbelievably watchable and just so brilliant as well that he was he was he just defied sort of logic and he was so funny I mean I've interviewed him a couple of times and he was just and funny for, for lots of different reasons you know and I, I he was so um, complex he was just fascinating I thought so, he, yeah, play, he played with David Guilford at um, Oak Hill and there was a guy who could make David Guilford who was a nice player but no more than a nice player and a very, very you know very good player but he could make team room, I think is how he'd be described as one 
good good in the team room. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, but he played with Seve in a formal match, and you know Seve was playing terrible golf at that point, and he could make David Guilford feel like the best player in the world. And, and I'd seen it was, I mean, Seve could Seve lit up everyone's life, but you know, if he spoke to you or talked to you, or, or he, he could make you feel like the best player in the world. And I'm sure he made David Guilford feel like you know you are a great champion, you are the best player in the world. And Guilford went out and single-handedly beat the Americans they played that day. And uh, I mean, Nicholas, I don't think, could do that, or, or Tiger, or because it's not their personality, but Seve could, you know, li- he, he lit up everyone's life through the way he was. You're yeah. the only one of us who, well, I suppose Richard's the other one who sort of, I don't know, Shaq, did you ever meet Seve? I didn't, but I'm hearing Tate's talk about him in the past, it's an extraordinary figure, a genuine charisma that you don't sort of come across often in life, I suspect. Yeah, no, it was really a big deal when he came here to play in Los Angeles and getting to watch him play. It was just different. There was nobody quite like him, and um, and and it was such a thrill that he he did it, and and it was quite a saga too. But uh, uh, I'm so glad I got to see him play. And this was when he was in his prime, obviously. Um, and just uh, uh, I, I I would agree that he's probably the most important person in at least uh, in my lifetime in the Ryder Cup. Uh, I mean, the, the matches at Muirfield and there's just Muirfield Village, excuse me. Uh, there were so many moments that uh, he clearly got people hooked on the whole thing. Uh, but then everybody since then has, has done their part, both good and bad, to to make it great fun. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing to watch who comes through in the situation and who understandably cracks because these are these are individuals forced into this team environment. And I think that's what. That was what what makes it fun, and what makes the whole captain situation even more entertaining. That uh, these are lone wolves. These are people who are good at what they do because they're they're loners. They're they're uh, they're individuals, and they really don't get along well with others. And that's why they're great golfers, and and we admire that about them. So we stick them in this bizarre situation every two years, and it's it's uh, it leads to bizarre behavior. And to bring it full circle, Richard. All of that's true of the captains as well, isn't it? None of them have spent their lives <laughs> even practicing to be captains. They've all been golfers. Um, and suddenly this is a whole different role, isn't it? The media conferences and picking the uniforms and the rain suits and uh, who's going to drive the other golf carts. None of that's got anything to do with what most of these guys have spent their lives crafting, has it? No, that's right. I mean, and you know, it's become a, you know, I quite often call it, you know, it's the most lucrative unpaid job in sport. You know, it's, it's become this sort of, um, you know, it's now we, we, as we saw last time. You know, there's a lot of movements, you know, a lot of agencies, a lot of management groups trying to get their guy the gig, and you, you know, that's it's become a significant thing. I do think that that. Um, sorry, I just while you were talking about Sevi, I was just going to say one of the most, the strangest and and most interesting books I read as a piece of research was Dean Beeman's book. Ah. I don't know if you ever read read this, and it's. I recommend the first chapter is extraordinary. It's about um, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, um, and then he but he then gets into Seve as well in terms of the you know he, obviously the sort of endless battles about playing the tour and not playing the tour. I just sorry, I just as you were talking, um, Shaq, I just it, it's worth digging out. It's a really obscure <laughs> thing. Um, but it's hmm. you know, you'll find it somewhere. It's Adam but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, Adam Shupak's book. Yeah, I think we had him on the yeah. show not long after that. Uh, to talk no, about did, oh wait, yes, we did. I think we did. Yeah, that's Adam, right. Lovely bloke. Sorry, Richard. Yeah, sorry. No, I was. 
so what was the what was the question again? So, so I put myself off there. So, so the captains are not career captains, unlike other sports where you build a career as being a coach. These captains uh, are actually just players who get asked to do a whole bunch of other stuff. And I suppose the important thing about that is also they get one chance, Richard. You live and die on one shot at a Ryder Cup captain normally. Yeah, I think there's a sort of um, the you know again going to the book. There is a there is a leadership industry awaiting the winner, mm. um, and so well, there is a sort of training. You know that that if you can hold a room, you can make a speech, you can do all the stuff that the captain expects you to do, and you win. Um, well, that's happy days because the you know that that sort of lights up the second you know you're sort of sunset years as a captain and that there is a great deal of of money to be made and fame for ex-captains these days if you if you've won so you know it's it's a but yeah i mean they're not used to doing it some are really good at it um i remember doing there was a year to go event at glen eagles with watson and mcginley and it was really interesting because they did a you know it was a sort of it took a train from Edinburgh station up and, you know, it was all just PR stuff, but they had an evening at Perth town hall. So it was a sort of packed, quite a big venue and Watson and it was a fireside chat with Watson and McGinney. And they were then sort of um, introduced on stage and you could sort of see that the state, the difference in status was very stark because you had Watson coming on and you had the sort of big screen behind him with his major championships and his, you know, illustrious career um, and you're literally standing ovation, Scottish, you know, obviously love him and he comes on and, and you know, just roll, you know, you just couldn't get enough of him. And then McGinley came on. It was quite a tricky moment because actually as he, the home captain came on and, you know, he, his accomplishments don't it don't add up, you know, in the same way, you know. Um, and it was clear from there that you had to then take this team man persona because you can't obviously go head to head with, you know, do get out with Watson on on credentials. But hasn't McGinley, Richard, proved himself to be the very best at this? I mean, he really has parlayed that Ryder Cup success. And I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but he played every part of it brilliantly. you, You quote Ted Bishop in the book. He rang McGinley and said to him, you know, I've picked Tom Watson as captain. And the first thing McGinley says, you know, he's one of my idols. And he's... Bishop got off the phone and said, he's as sly as a fox. He's he's already yeah, yeah. himself as the <laughs> underdog. And McGinley really has been brilliant at this, hasn't he? And he continues to be brilliant at it. Uh, he's the go-to man right now in the lead-up to this Ryder Cup to talk about... Except for Darren Clark. Oh. Well, that's right, and the two of them don't. He's even handled that well on yeah. the Ferry Show. But, Richard, is, is McGinley the most, successful, the most successful team man, team room man in terms of a captain that we've seen? It seems that way from the outside. Yeah, I think he's I think he's handled it brilliantly, and and we got to remember that he's you know he's got an international marketing degree and from a you know esteemed business university in the states. So and an accomplished he's, player. He's, he's not Watson, but he's an accomplished player. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I, he's a. They're all great players to me. You know, <laughs> but there's like a <laughs> sort too. of. Um, well, it's like a. You know, I, I I think he's handled it really well, and he's he, I don't think he's put a foot wrong. You know, and I think there's a in terms of the PR stuff, I think it's it's been handled brilliantly. You know, Richard, you you that's something you just touched on something that's really bothered me about this run up, and and in particular on the United States side, where we have, and this is a social media issue, I'm sure, in part. But you do hear it in people's comments. The the way players are demeaned, and they're you know, Bubba Watson uh, is is 
just been just slapped around. Jim Furyk has been uh, things have been said about him. I can't believe. And I wonder if this endangers the Ryder Cup that we're moving to this this place where when it comes down to deciding a player, they're so uh, disparaged. I mean, what is the is this something that maybe somebody like Paul Casey just said? I don't I don't need to be a part of this anymore because here we are we're, we're we're pumping up these captains and their analytics and their their vice captains and then these players are just these 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 little pawns and and it, at best and then now we've kind of gone to this next level where we're actually making these people out to be bad golfers or or bad people uh is there a danger that this this hurts the event at some point if this continues on this this trajectory well i think there's a, there's a just on the on the data thing and what what we're seeing in 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 other sports and particularly in in football you know soccer over here is that there is there the the performance data is um obviously useful and and for coaches but it's becoming a something that the commercial side wants to sell as well so and when you're then looking, okay, we look at Bubba and say, right, is he in or out? And if Davis Love starts to open his data book and say, look, okay, he's weak from this range or whatever. If I'm Bubba, I'd be pretty pissed off about that, you know, in terms of, you know, you're exposing the sort of secret source. And there is a sort of innate tension in that because um, how much the captain goes to justify himself um, and his decisions and if he then starts to use data to support these uh, arguments, if I'm a player, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm not very happy about that. You know, particularly if I'm not getting picked because you're having a go at my putting, you know, strokes gained on the putting green or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I think there's a sort of it, it is a bit of drama there. There's a nice bit of um, interesting theatre but actually behind it, when you start getting into performance data as a marketing tool, I think it's it's tricky territory in some cases. This is a bit off the topic, but doesn't it have interesting effects otherwise? I'd be interested in Clayton's uh, thoughts on this. <clears throat> I've sort of had the feeling the last six to 12 months that Rory McIlroy has kind of been talked into being a worse putter than he is in reality, in as much as it's all anybody's kind of talked about and raised with him. Clayton, when people are... None of us, thankfully, apart from you, have ever had our games analysed by anybody apart from the blokes we play with laughing at us. What can what effect can that have uh, on a player? Um, well, Rory didn't. Put, where did he put really badly? Somewhere he put the PGA. Bit, it was horrific, horrific. Yeah, like, yeah, that yeah. was the, the worst. Yeah. He said it himself. But, he said, you know, if you put, well, you, you, you have to. It's a different yourself. question, but you know, as. Well, do I want to go? Um, <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> did Tiger Woods ever drive the ball decently after he stopped using a Titleist driver? And was it a coincidence that Roy McIlroy picked up a Scotty Cameron putter and won the very next week? Well, it goes back to what, what Rich is talking about. It, it, you, it's unprovable. He might have mm. put the eyes out of it with a with a Nike putter as well. And he went and saw Phil Kenyon, is it, the putting teacher in Europe who, in Britain who maybe helped him, but... Yeah, you know, I'm not sure about that. I mean, yeah, I mean, players' games get overanalyzed to death. You're right by people who don't really aren't dealing with the facts or 
Yeah. And as a player, Clates, it must be almost... If you're Rory McIlroy, that's impossible to block that out, surely, because you have to front the media at every tournament and the questions get asked. So even if you don't read anything about yourself, you know what people are saying, don't you? I just wonder what that impact might be. And in terms of Bubba, um, what the impact of this whole last week might have on him, Shaq. I mean, he's he's been pilloried before, obviously, but... Well, he claims to not read or, or pay attention to any of this. Of course, he, I'm sure he does. But I do I do worry because I, I don't think it's right that a player uh, is uh, volunteering his time to play in this event. And sure, a player's image is enhanced just as a captain's is from a winning performance and a successful moment. I mean, Ian Poulter has parlayed his Ryder Cup success. And good for him because there's a lot of pressure and he's – He's showing up there uh, with just a donation to his charity and putting himself on the line, and he's performed, and and I'm I'm happy for him. I just don't I I don't feel good about these players who are all very good golfers uh, being disparaged uh, in this process for something that uh, pays them nothing and is a a a volunteer uh, position for their country. And uh, where other organizations make a whole bunch of money off their back, and, and then now all of a sudden we're, we've reached this point where I, I don't know. Maybe I just read Twitter too much, but I, I just I don't feel comfortable with a lot of the things that are said. And and I think Furyk's probably the one actually that bothers me the most because yeah, his Ryder Cup record is not great, but the the level of of hatred towards uh, uh, Jim Furyk as a possible pick is just mind boggling. He just shot a fifty eight. He's finished mm-hmm. second U.S. Open. He's played half the year, and and uh, he probably would have made the team on points if he played the full season. So, um, it, it, it I, I'm 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 not comfortable with it, and I worry that there will be a point where this gets so ugly that it it does somehow impact what should be what Jack Nicklaus sees as a a great uh, moment bringing these people together in an exhibition that's, that provides uh, occasionally thrilling moments. Richard, is it a symptom of a world of anonymous commentary, which is what social media has given people? You go on Twitter and <clears throat> not reveal who you are necessarily and feel free to comment away. You can go to the bottom of stories on blogs and websites and make comments under an alias. Uh, and I think the evidence would suggest that you know people are more likely to be disparaging. They'll say things in those formats they wouldn't say to somebody's face. Is part of what we're seeing here and what Jeff's talking about really just a symptom of you know this anonymous commentary world that we live in, which we didn't used to. You know, you have to put your name on stories. I, for the most part, do. As does Jeff. As does Clates. If we write something and can be sort of asked about it, but that's not the case for a lot of people making the sorts of comments Jeff's talking about, is it? I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. I think it's you know. I think we're sort of we're almost at the end of the beginning, really, of the of that sort of social media thing. We, we you know, it's it's so new, and people are, you know, uh, already we're seeing that the golfers themselves. They initially, some of them embraced it. Poulter being obvious example, and were very good at it. Um, now they're weighing up whether or not they want to do this anymore. Um, but they they've created a sort of channel, you know, a media channel for themselves. I think one of the trends that we're seeing is that they're looking to bypass uh, us in the media and, and you know, um, everyone else by just going direct. You're seeing this with LeBron and, you know, his uninterrupted channel and Derek Jetta's Players' Tribune. All of that that trend, you can sort of see that golfers would, would grab that with both hands. So they just want to, you know, tell their own story and not be asked 
stupid questions you know you it, it, or not even stupid questions good questions they don't want to ask <laughs> they'd much rather <laughs> they're, they're not they're engage even worse, at all. <laughs> i mean it's interesting as what you're saying about the you know talking mcelroy into being a a worse putter you see lee westwood's face whenever he's asked about you know his short game mm. and, you know that just sort of the, the whole thing just irritates him to to that you know a really intense degree i'm sure it would me as well if I, every time i turned up at a major championship and people asking about my chipping and putting um, i remember vj singh talking about it he, he had a period there where he he won quite a few tournaments and he said quite openly that what he did was every week was tell himself he was the best putter in the world because all he ever heard was what a shame it was that he was such a great striker of the ball that couldn't putt. And he just changed his own mindset to tell himself he was the best putter in the world. And he went on that streak of um, sort of wins in his early 40s, which was which was quite fun. So those things must have an impact, I guess, and that, I guess that's the point I was making. So, uh, look, there's a million other things in the book, Richard, and outside of the book that we'd love to talk to you about, but I've just had a look at how long we've been going for, and it's a fair while. So <laughs> we probably should bring it to an end there. It's been fascinating to talk to you, as it always is, and I no doubt you are looking forward to the Ryder Cup as much as we are, but we thank you for uh, taking some time today. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And then, uh, as ever, keep going with the, the podcast. It's Where can we get the book, a... Richard? Better tell people. Well, it, it, Amazon will be your first port of call, but also um, it's released in the UK and the US. I'm just thinking about Australia. I think, I'm not sure uh, whether it's it's printed over there, but certainly it's in uh, in bookshops. Right. Can you guys buy... Uh... Kindle editions off of Amazon because the book is available in both hardcover and the Kindle edition. Yeah, I'm sure. I just can. looked. Yeah, yeah sure. I'm gonna have. I'll put links on my website to As the well. uh, pages to purchase those because it really is a great read, and it's not just pertaining to this Ryder Cup, but and it's not just pertaining to golf. It's a you really have done a fabulous. No, job, it's Richard of broadening yeah, the the thing. It really yep. is a fantastic read that makes you think, and that's what we like on this podcast: stuff that makes you think. So, yes, thanks for taking some time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And Thanks, Jeff Richard. over there in the US. Yes, thank you from Jeff as well. To you, uh, Shaq, great to have you on board as well. We do this f- not often enough these days, but we will promise again to try harder to produce more. We will, and uh, hopefully things will will, uh, will return to a more normal pace here in the fall, and we'll be able to uh, have some people on like Richard. Who we, we, there are some interesting books out or coming out and uh some interesting things going on in the game so we will we will uh we need to be better uh about it because uh i i enjoy these conversations so much they're just great you've overlooked one important thing that's coming up jeff and that's the return of tiger so all that other stuff's going to get maybe, pushed to the back maybe as you well know we'll see when the Safeway rolls around clate's always fantastic Safeway. <laughs> that's exactly right um <laughs> <laughs> Never have we looked forward so much to a tournament sponsored by... Are they a supermarket chain in the States? What a safe way. Yes, 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 yes. I just like that you put the, the on it like it's this venerable event. That's right, it's now the Safeway. Safeway. Year two. That's right. The Safeway. <laughs> Clay, it's always fantastic to hear from you, and we must get your mum on one day since she's capable of both caddying Tiger Woods to majors and right. winning Ryder Cups. She'd be great to listen to as well, I'm sure. Thanks, mate. It was good fun. It's always good fun. And that wraps it up for... Episode 68, I think I said, of uh, State of the Game. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. We'll look forward to your company again sooner than this one on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.